It's good to be back with you again today. And it's quite surprising that the week has gone by already. Um, seems like just the other day we were driving on to campus. I guess it was just the other day, but uh, um, here we are. Tomorrow is the last. Tomorrow we're going to have the last meeting of camp meeting already. This is this is my last presentation. Yes. Okay. Those of you who were here at the beginning of the week uh, will remember the uh, story that I shared of uh, an example of a ruined and broken life uh, as we introduced the story of Nehemiah. Young lady, terrible beginnings, uh, abuse. And it's such a, such a great example of a broken and ruined life, is it not? Um, it was a story of a girl who's in such a difficult situation that I asked you the question, does she have any hope of rebuilding her broken and ruined life? Uh, and absolutely she does. We all know that she does stand a chance uh, with God's help. Likewise, today I'd like to tell you another story. It's a story about James. And uh, just to give you an idea... Uh, the story of James, he's uh, in his 60s, uh, and uh, one of his earliest memories as a child was around the age of three years old. His mother was a heavy smoker, and as he gave her a kiss goodnight, she grabbed his cheeks and she kissed him on the lips and forced some of her smoke-ridden saliva into his mouth and. uh we, we are disgusted by that. We are appalled by the, the treatment of a mother to her young three-year-old. James was abused in such ways, and he remembers feeling filthy, uh, feeling like he should just be flushed um, down the toilet. What a beginning for a kid. Uh, a mother's open arms should be a safe place to turn to, should they not? Uh, a mother's embrace uh, is the thing that gives her child the greatest sense of confidence and security. And when a child receives such kinds of abuse, uh, especially from the mother, like James did at three years old, what hope does he have of finding security and confidence at any point later in life. What hope does he have? I can tell you that he would feel like there is no hope because he's, in, he's caught in the situation of dealing with this childhood. Um, his dad was a heavy drinker, binge drinker, I should say, uh, get smashed once a month, every month, with all of his friends. And um, when James was 12 years old, he began drinking and smoking. I, I can't imagine how that would begin to affect the life. How could a person doing that and starting life that way feel any hope at all of rebuilding from such brokenness? such ruin. At uh, 14 years old, James stole a car. Happened to be his parents' car. Went for a joyride. And you know what? He paid dearly for that mistake and ended up crashing the car, got a broken leg. And you know, his father was no good example, as I already mentioned, but he refused to allow James at 14 years old to receive any anesthetics 
for the hospital treatment that he received for the broken leg. It was actually a surgery. And uh, um, this is the type of uh, home James grew up in. 16 years old, he began to smoke pot and uh, joined the Navy at 18 years old. And, and uh, eventually, years down the road, he got an inheritance, uh, over $100,000, and he gambled away $100,000. And as a result, feels the loss, the gaping hole that that leaves, and it has smashed his hope even further. Do you get what I'm talking about? What hope does a person have who's going through an experience like this? Uh, James experienced a broken neck in subsequent accidents, car accident, uh, where he was in a coma for three weeks. He... uh, um, had a severe concussion, you know, his broken leg. He's had uh, times in his life where his life should have come to an end. In fact, right around Christmas of 1968, some of you were uh, alive and well in 1968, and uh, <laughs> right around Christmas time, James decided that he'd had enough. Would you not have decided that you had enough? I don't judge him in the least bit for feeling this way. He took his 38, went down to Half Moon Bay, and decided to end it. I praise the Lord that something happened that night. Something happened in his mind to, to change the course of Action and, and he decided not to do that. He's had all kinds of medical interventions and, and uh, everything from a tracheotomy to a lung removed. Some of you know what I'm talking about. This is what we've seen this week in the city of Jerusalem. Broken down walls, gates that have been burned with fire, hopelessness, complete Hopelessness and chaos. We've seen the, the city of Jerusalem surrounded by an enemy. Before we open up the word today to Nehemiah chapter 11, I'd like to come to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, I ask that you would send your spirit to guide our thoughts today. As we open your word, let your spirit teach us. Uh, help us to understand what it is we're reading And help us to, most importantly, apply it to our lives. Help us to take these lessons to heart ourselves. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for being here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Say again. There was a handout yesterday, and I, I, you know, I should have brought all my handouts from the past few days, and I haven't done that. Um... Talk to me afterwards, and I'll, I'll get some, some of the handouts from previous days if you need them. Um, anybody here ever heard of Joe Pearls? Yes? A few hands? Good. I love Joe Pearls. He's got a smooth voice. And uh, some of you have, have heard um, one of my favorite songs that he sings. Uh, that I've shared before, but this morning I'd like to take just a minute to share that song with you once again. The title of the song is A Vessel Unworthy. A Vessel Unworthy. Empty and broken, I came back to Him. A vessel unworthy, so scarred from sin. But he did not despair, he started over again. And I bless the day, he didn't throw the clay away. Over and over, he molds me and makes me. Into his likeness, he fashions the clay. 
a vessel of honor I am today, all because Jesus didn't throw the clay away. He is the potter and I am the clay, molded in his image he wants me to stay. But when I stumble and fall, when my vessel breaks, he just picks up the pieces, he doesn't throw the clay away. Over and over, he molds me and makes me into his likeness. He fashions the clay, a vessel of honor I am today, all because Jesus didn't throw the clay away. A vessel of honor I am today, all because Jesus didn't throw the clay away. Vessel of Honor. Uh, the song reminds me of yesterday's prayer. Remember the prayer we read in chapter 10? Was it chapter 9? Uh, chapter 9 of Nehemiah. The prayer where they remembered the goodness and the grace of God in always bringing the people back again uh, and accepting their changed hearts again. Even after they had been witnesses of the mercy of God and then still chose to go their own way in rebellion against Him. Even after that, He received them back. He brought them back to Himself. He didn't throw the, way, the clay away then. And he doesn't and is not throwing the clay away today. Do I have a couple of volunteers to hand out today's handout? <clears throat> take uh, maybe half of those. And Bracey can take... Or we got some more here. Here we can do it this way. Thank you, gentlemen. Um... Chapter 11 opens up with uh, the idea of a voluntary draft. A voluntary draft. Uh, Some of you might have been around during World War II. I know some of you have been around during the Vietnam War. My dad was drafted into the Vietnam conflict, and uh, he went in as a conscientious objector, was sent over to Korea, and uh, was stationed there through the duration of his time in the Vietnam conflict. The draft means he had no choice. Uh, It was either, as someone put it once, uh, uh, go to, what did he say, run to Canada? Or... or, uh, Yeah. Anyway, I forget how the punchline goes. But anyway, you you don't have a choice. In the draft, it's obligatory. And here we start the chapter 11 with a voluntary draft. That's sort of like an oxymoron. It's sort of like saying uh, military intelligence. It's an oxymoron. Uh, It's sort of like saying there's another one back there. Someone's asking for one back over there, too. Uh, it's like saying um, congressional ethics, <laughs> right? Okay, you got the idea. Uh, God loves free choice, does he not? This is how God operates, free choice, freedom of will. The devil does not operate like that. He works to make you feel guilty. He works to make you feel lost and hopeless and ruined. That's the devil's plan, and he forces you. You know, is it easy to deal with temptation? No. That's what I call force. 
He's pushing us hard. Pushing just the right buttons to trigger what he wants to get out of us. That's how the devil operates. The Lord doesn't work that way. He says, you know, you're free. You're free to accept me. But you're free to reject me. You know, that's how God operates. Uh, Take a moment. I've put the text there in your notes. Uh, Take a moment and turn to those texts with me uh, right now. And the first one is Joshua 24.15. Does anybody know Joshua 24.15 by heart? Amen, sister. Choose you this day whom you will serve, it says. If it, it starts off by saying, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I like that. Choose. God is a God of choice. Deuteronomy 30.19. Turning back just a few pages. Feel free to read that right out loud if you've got it. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19. Um, I'm not getting to it as fast as some of you are, maybe. I'll go ahead and read it. Verse 19, Then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. I'm sorry. That's not. I'm looking at the wrong chapter. Who's got it? Mm-hmm. Choose. God is a God of choice. Choose life. You've got a choice set before you. You've got two options set before you. Choose life. It just makes sense, doesn't it? The third and final verse there is Luke 9.23. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. I've already mentioned the fact that this year, my birthday, which was in May, my wife blessed me with a birthday present, this new Bible, and I'm still getting the pages to work uh, properly for me. If anyone would. Do you know what would means right there? It means there's another word for that will. Where is our will? It's actually, in God's eyes, we have a free will. We can choose. That's how God operates. Um, I'm curious about Nehemiah chapter 11. Uh, All the way through that chapter, we see uh, a whole bunch more names. And again, in the beginning of chapter 12, it's this... Boring list of names once again. And I believe when Paul was telling Timothy, uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Do you agree with that? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Do you agree with that? So, (laughs) So, a long list of names is profitable. Am I right? Okay, there's something here. There's something here. Let's take a look. Um, I wonder if I could have been in this list. We look at the list and we see the children of Judah. We see the sons of Perez. We see the sons of Benjamin and, and Joel, the son of Zikri. We see the priests listed out. We see all these names listed throughout chapter 11. You know who they were? You know who these people were? They were people that were filling the city of Jerusalem. These were the Jews that occupied the land of that day. I wonder, if I were alive then, would my name be in this list? Would your name have been in this list? This includes... uh, all those who have accepted positions of, of service in the church. 
These were all the positions listed here in Nehemiah 11 are positions of service in the church. Service for God's people. I wonder if any of our names... Mm -hmm. Thank you for the water, Jay. wonder if our names might be on that list. You know, some of us might say, well, (laughs) um, I know my name, or I think my name probably wouldn't have made it into that list because I know who I am. I know what kind of person I am, and I know what I've accepted and rejected in terms of ministry to the Lord in my local congregation, in my family, or in my life in general. I know where I have failed the Lord in His calling to me. So I don't think I would have made it into that list. Some of you might be thinking this, but I want to point out in verse 4, chapter 11, verse 4, that a person is listed here that might surprise you. I'm sorry, did I say 11 verse 4? I'm moving into chapter 12 verse 4. I apologize. Just seeing if you're, you know, paying attention to the scriptures that I'm pointing out to you. Uh, Chapter 12 verse 4 says, Ido... Uh, chapter 12, verse 4. Did I say chapter 4, verse 12? Okay. Ido, Ginothoi, Abijah. Um, okay, I made a mistake in my notes. <laughs> I'll admit it. I made a mistake in my notes. Um, we'll find it here. Uh, there is the name Perez mentioned. Was that in chapter 11? And I, I messed up. I pointed us to... See, I couldn't find it in 11, verse 4, and so I thought that maybe my notes were wrong and it was chapter 12, verse 4. You've got it. So, Perez is mentioned in this list. Do you know who Perez was? This much I do know. Perez was an illegitimate child born to Judah and Tamar. Do you know who Judah was? Everybody should know who Judah was. That was one of the sons of Jacob. That was the brother of Joseph, one of those brothers that threw Joseph into the pit and sold him into Egypt. Judah. This is who we're talking about. Judah had a a couple of sons, and his sons, first one son married this girl, and he died. So he gave his next son to the girl, and he died. Well, she wanted the next son, and he said, Nah, I've lost enough sons, I'm not going to give you another one, right? So he refused. She felt such uh, a burden to continue the line of her husband, to continue the name of Jacob, their father, uh, grandfather, uh, to continue the name of Judah, her father-in-law. And so, you know, she dressed up as a harlot, hid her face, And when Judah came riding into town, she pretended to be a harlot and she seduced him. Judah, her father-in-law. And slept with him. And she had twins. Perez was one of those boys. Perez was an illegitimate child born of a very unholy relationship. But Perez was included in this list. Are you with me? Do you think now that perhaps your name could have been included in this list had you lived in those days? Uh Uh-huh. I dare say so. There are none here today that hold a worse standing than Perez. He was in this list. I think the list is there to remind us and to show us and to demonstrate to us how important it is to remember our heroes, the people in history, the people who have lived and seen God's hand at work, the people who have gone on before and seen great great things happen, uh, people who have made horrible mistakes and people who have had terrible beginnings. I think it's there so that we can read those names and recognize history is important. I think that's part of what makes this passage of Scripture profitable. 
Um, we go on in chapter 12. We are in chapter 12 now. And the list continues. Like I said, it's just a list of names, one right after another. It's just a stack of names. And, um, you know, there's specialized duties for some of these people. I think today there are specialized duties for God's people. Today, there are there is a need for people, those who are willing to keep the church clean. There is a need for people to help keep the treasury of the church, to lead out in song service. There's a need of people by to 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 lead out by playing the piano or or singing, whatever the thing is that the Lord has called you to do. There's a need for people to be greeters at the door. How many churches are there where you come into the door and there's no one there to greet you? Uh, maybe that's your church. But then you should stand up and you should stand there and, and greet people and say, Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Would you sign our guest book? Um, there is a need for hosts and hostesses, uh, for making sure everyone is fed uh, at the Sabbath meal. Um, there's a need for people, you right here in this congregation, to stand up and preach occasionally. There's a need for you to step forward and announce, I'm saying be bold enough to announce your willingness before the whole church body to be a prayer warrior. I wonder if there might be someone who would be willing to do that. Very important. Don't you feel good about that? Do you, do you sit here and feel like you're not quite ready for that? Do you feel like you're not quite rebuilt enough? like the city of Jerusalem was rebuilt up to this point, and the city of Jerusalem, Nehemiah saw fit, that it was ready. It was ready for these types of leadership. Do you somehow feel that you're not rebuilt enough to be ready for those positions? Well, go with me to 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1. <clears throat> In verse 27, 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Are you feeling foolish? Are you feeling less than built? Are you feeling less than renewed? Maybe not to the point where you think God wants you to be. If that's the case, this verse is for you. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. Second Corinthians 12:9. says, he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for you. Why is God's grace sufficient for us? Says the answer right there after it. My grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because my strength, God says, is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Do you not feel as if you're ready for such a calling? Do you feel like you're not ready to be included in the list? My friends, if that's how you feel, you are indeed ready. There are three aspects of worship that are shared here. Moving on. Uh, verse 27 of chapter 12. Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 27. I put a little uh, uh, box there on your notes. You can fill it in if you'd like to. Um, in verse 27 is the first aspect of worship. 
This is a great dedication service that's taking place. And the walls of the city have been rebuilt. The gates have been renewed. Everything is in place. The city looks normal and people are living in it. It's time now for the people to take their positions. Um, they decide to that it's time now to dedicate the wall, to dedicate the city of Jerusalem. And they have a dedication ceremony, and it's, it, they, they turn it into a worship service. And there are three aspects of worship. And this is according to the book of Nehemiah. This is, this is according to the times they were living in and their experience. But I'm going to share it with you. There are three aspects of worship in this dedication ceremony. Verse 27 brings out the fact that joyful worship, joyful worship, gladness in other words, is the first component, the first aspect of worship in this particular dedication service. Joyful worship. Joy and gladness. The second one, the second aspect of it is in verse 30. And we see the idea of purification. They purified themselves. They didn't just purify themselves. They purified the place. Purification. How, how do we go about purification? Who, whose work is the work of purification? The Lord. The Holy Spirit, um, the Spirit of Christ in our lives. That's where purification comes from. Nothing we can do, nothing we can say brings this about. It is only the work of the Lord. It is a miracle in our lives. And it is an essential part of this particular worship service. Purification. What, are we, what would a person purify themselves of? Sin. Um, good, generality. Uh, what would we purify ourselves of? Give me some examples. Lying? Good. Any others? Yeah, not, studying not studying your Bible as you should. Um, covetousness. Gossip. Uh, breaking the Sabbath. What would you say? Selfishness. Selfishness. Selfishness, that's another generality, actually. There's a whole lot of terrible things under selfishness. Pride, it's the number one thing God hates, according to Proverbs 6. Uh, those are things we can purify ourselves of. Remember Isaiah? It was in my first handout to you. Isaiah 1, it says, Put, a, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, says the Lord. Remember that? That's purification. And it's a work that only the Spirit of God can do in our hearts and lives. That's when we claim the promises. That's when we refer again to that old favorite, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's purification. The third aspect of worship, in verse 31 is thankfulness. In verse 31, it says that they uh, he appointed two large thanksgiving choirs, or choirs to give thanks. It was a really interesting story. You know, they in this particular service, they opened up uh, one of the gates, and they had all the people in this body of leadership, uh, they had all the people divide into two choirs of thanksgiving, and they mounted the wall together at near one of the gates somewhere. And they got up on the wall, and one, one choir went one way, and the other choir went the other way. And they circled the city. They circled the city. And they sang the, the songs of thanksgiving to the Lord. This was a serious dedication ceremony. If we were to dedicate this tent today, it would be all of us dividing into two groups and going around and forming a circle around this, this tent and dedicating it to the Lord. This tent has already been dedicated to the Lord, but that's what it would have been like. Only we're talking about thousands of people surrounding the city of Jerusalem. 
uh, broken and ruined city, a broken and ruined life. What does that bring to mind when we talk about a dedication ceremony where the city, the broken and ruined city that's now been rebuilt, it's now a beautiful, renewed life in Christ. What does it resemble when when the people gather around it and surround this life with a prayer of dedication? Wow, isn't this great? What if a person was renewed by the Spirit of God uh, in your midst? Wouldn't it make sense to, to then surround that person with prayer of dedication and with, with a community just encircling around them? I love the symbolism we see here in Nehemiah. It's so great. Um, chapter 13. We see that the city is cleansed from all filthiness and influences in chapter 13. It says in verse 1, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God. Why? It says right in the next verse, Because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water. Instead, they hired Balaam to bring a curse against them. These were groups of people that were not to be included. They, they had rejected the people of God when they were uh, in the wilderness, having left the bondage of Egypt, Egypt, asking to be able to pass through their land, and instead they were not hospitable, they, call, they wanted to call down the curses of God upon these people instead. So the book of the law actually revealed that they were not to include them. They were not to be allowed to come into the house of God. Um, come into the assembly of God. Sorry about that. I've got to drink some water. Um, <clears throat> the Lord, of course, turned the curse of Balaam into a blessing. And so it was when these people heard these things, when they heard the law in verse 3, they separated all of the mixed multitude from Israel. I can't imagine the hardship that that created. There were some issues, I'm sure, amongst the people when this took place because, hey, we've been here for a long time. We've been part of this for years and now you're kicking us out based on some old thing? Can you hear it? Can you picture the strife that it might have caused? But the fact is, it was the mixed multitude, and what did it symbolize? We cannot have... Blessed is the man, Psalm says, Psalm 1, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the way of sinners... That's what it comes down to. We cannot afford to have these influences over our children. We cannot afford to have these influences over the weak ones of our congregation. There must be a separation that takes place. And today, what that might symbolize is is simply um, removing those evil influences. And I'm... I'm going to venture out and maybe get myself into trouble uh, by saying that it could be television. It could be the movies we're choosing to watch. Maybe those things have no more place from this time forward in our lives. Maybe it means that we need to separate from ourselves all of this filth and ungodliness. All of this mixed multitude, the Bible says. Mixed multitude. Well, the things I watch are mostly good. That's a mixed multitude. It's all mixed. It's all mostly good stuff, but there's some bad stuff mixed into it. And the mixed multitude had to go, according to Nehemiah 13. Verse 4, now before this, Elisha, this is where the uh, the uh, story gets a little bit interesting. Uh we're closing it out now. We're coming down to the end. 
Before this, Eliashib the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with who? Tobiah. Wasn't he the friend of Sanballat? Who, yeah, he was the one who was mocking and conspiring to kill and destroy and probably, he he was, uh, not probably, he was responsible for those smooth invitations to come and let's let's uh, compromise together. The priest Eliashib was allied with Tobiah. That, like I said, it gets very interesting. And the priest Eliashib <clears throat> had prepared for Tobiah in verse five a large room where they had previously stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and the oil, which had been commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and offerings for the priests. Guess what? That's where all those things were stored, and it was all moved out. Why? So the priests could make room for Tobiah. Gave him a room in the church. But during all this, in verse 6, Nehemiah clarifies, <laughs> I think perhaps his, <laughs> his self is coming out a little bit here, just a tiny bit. He says, but I, I was not there for this. I, this was in my absence, he says. Um, so while I was gone, all this was happening. In other words, if I had been there, this wouldn't have happened. <laughs> uh, yeah. During all this, I was not in Jerusalem because in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. And then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. By the way, on a side note, uh, do you realize that the whole book of Nehemiah that we've looked at has covered a span of about 12 years? Not the rebuilding of the walls. 52 days is all it took to build the wall. That's why those enemies, Sanballat and the others, were going, what, they think they're going to build this in one day? They saw how they were working. Uh, It amazed them. And it was built in 52 days. But the course of the story covers a span of 12 years. About 12 years. So, during that time, he obtained leave from the king... Uh, He returned to the king to work for him for a while, and then he obtained leave from the king again and came back to Jerusalem in verse 7. And that's when he discovered the evil that Eliashib the priest had done for Tobiah in preparing for a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw it all out. (laughs) I like it. He went in there, and he just he opened the window, and started shoving stuff out. He had everything thrown out onto the street. Tobiah, at this point, is saying, wait a minute, you know, we're, we're forming a friendship. See, uh, the high priest has been witnessing to me, and we're, we've got this relationship developing, and, and uh, maybe the priest would have said the same thing. Maybe he was sitting there saying, oh, calm down now, calm down. Don't, don't get so crazy with all this stuff. Just calm down. But he threw it out. Nehemiah was no one to mess with. <laughs> You'll see in a few, just a couple more verses. <laughs> he gets more serious than this. Threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms. Uh, And I brought back into the rooms the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. And that's when he realized that these portions that belong to the Levites, the portions of all these goods that were supposed to have been stored in this room for their use, couldn't be stored in the room, so they weren't available. And so the Levites had to actually go out into the field and do farm work in order to survive. That was not the plan of God. I'm not saying that the Levites weren't supposed to work. 
I'm not saying that at all. But it was not the plan of God that they had to go out and provide for their own sustenance by working in the field because the Levites were commissioned a work to do, a very hard work, a very important work. And that was of leading the people. And this, these provisions were to take care of the Levites, make it possible for them to do the work the Lord had given them to do. And there wasn't any room for these provisions because they had let the enemy into the house of God. Have we let the enemy into the house of God? Is it possible that today, somewhere, sometime, in our worship services or otherwise, have we allowed the enemy to have a room in our house? Hmm. Hmm. Think about it. We, we We need to deal with it as Nehemiah did. We need to be careful because the devil is working to undermine the work of God any way he can. Remember the quote that I gave you earlier this week? Therefore, he invents every possible device to engross our minds. Whatever that place is, that we give to the enemy is just like the room that was given to Tobiah. (laughs) Where are we? Verse 10? Yes, verse 11. So I contended with the rulers. There was a bit of a spat that went on between the leadership of Israel at this point. And I said, why is the house of God forsaken? Gross neglect going on here. And I gathered them together and set them in their place. I said, everybody, come to this meeting. Everybody, have a seat. I have something to say to you. Now, keep in mind, we can't be marching into the church and taking charge like that and cutting and slashing whatever we see and interpret as the room set up for the enemy because sometimes... uh, it's important to let the person with the most power do that. But then you've got situations where the person with the most power isn't standing up, are they? Then somebody, somebody better open their mouths. All right? So then all of Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouse Shelemiah and Zadok and of the Le- uh, the scribe of the Levites, Padiah, and next to them was Hanan the son of Zachar, the son of Madaniah, for they were considered faithful men. He found some faithful men who were true to the Lord and placed them in charge of these positions. Treasure, scribe, priest, because they were considered faithful. And notice in verse 14. Notice, actually, I put it in your notes. Verses 14, 22, 29, and 31. Nehemiah brings his cares and his perplexities to the Lord in prayer. We've seen that all through the book of Nehemiah. He's a man of prayer, and he always brings it to the Lord in prayer. So we see in verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds. Please, in other words, Lord, remember the things that I've done. I've done these things on your behalf, Lord. In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. We have all sorts of uh, filthiness and uh, evil influences taking place in the city at this time. We've got the mixed multitude. We've got those who are robbing the house of God by not allowing the articles to be stored where they're supposed to be stored, not providing for the Levites. That's the same, Malachi says, that's the same as robbing God. Um, And now in verses 15 through 22, we see that they are breaking the Sabbath. Um, Verse 23 uh, oh, breaking the Sabbath in verse 15, they were bringing all kinds of stuff into Jerusalem for sale. 
They were selling uh, provisions on the Sabbath. They were treading wine presses on the Sabbath, uh, loading up the donkeys with all the goods on the Sabbath. And there was a realization that mm, the Sabbath was being forgotten. Sabbath was being broken. Uh, outside people, men of Tyre, dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah. So they were buying stuff on the Sabbath. So then I contended with the nobles of, Jeru- of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Didn't your fathers do that, do that exact same thing? And didn't God, because of it, bring you all this disaster, this captivity onto your heads? Yet you bring added wrath onto Israel by profaning the Sabbath yourselves. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened until after the Sabbath was over. Then I posted some of my servants that I could trust at the gates so that no burdens could be brought in through the gates on the Sabbath day. Now, there were at times, in verse 20, merchants and sellers of all different kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice, he says, occasionally, in other words. So I warned them. (laughs) I'm warning you. And I think he pointed his finger at them. I'm warning you. Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do that again, I'm going to lay hands on you. (laughs) Says it right there. If you do that again, I'm going to lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come anymore on the Sabbath. Nehemiah was not a man to mess with. He was a powerful individual, not just in his leadership role, but in his physique. He was a strong man, and he could lay hands on them, and they wouldn't stand a chance against someone who was personally trained to be one of the guards, the last fronts of defense for the king of Babylon, king of Persia. Uh, Nehemiah wasn't a man to mess with. I'm going to lay hands on you. (laughs) And I commanded the Levites in verse 22 that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. And he prays again, Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. I think he prayed that prayer because he realized after telling them, If you do this again, I'm going to lay hands on you. I think he realized afterwards that night he went to bed and realized that he didn't know Jesus as a man walking the face of the earth. But I imagine he might have said something like, yeah, I guess Jesus wouldn't have done that. Maybe Jesus wouldn't have laid hand, threatened to lay hands on somebody. So he had a little prayer. Got on his knees that night and said, Lord, remember me concerning this and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Have mercy upon me, O God. I've had to pray that prayer a few times. Then in verse 23, we see that another issue came. Besides breaking the Sabbath, there was also also adultery taking place. Issues of marriage, bad marriages taking place. People were not being as careful as they should have been in the unions that were taking place between the people. All the way through verse 28, uh, we see a description of, of uh, marrying pagan women and you know marrying uh, unlike believers, uh, people, people who weren't like believers, um, and, and so on and so forth. And the work goes on. We understand now, because this is the end of the story of Nehemiah, now we understand that the story goes on. We started with a broken and ruined city, didn't we? We started with a people that were in captivity. Why? Because they were unfaithful to God. 
they had gotten them into the broken and ruined, gotten themselves into the broken and ruined mess that they were in. They got themselves there. Their choices got them there. And then we see the city being rebuilt. Praise the Lord, right? Then we see issues. The enemy attacks and, and, and with all these disruptions and, and concerns and issues and life goes on. And we see that the way the chap, the way the story ends, that there were issues all the way to the end. And to this day, the issues have continued. It only goes to show that our experience with the Lord is the work of a lifetime. Sanctification, we're told, is the work of a lifetime. It doesn't end here today. The Lord has touched your heart. The Lord has reached your life. The Lord is working on you. And it's not done here today. You remember the story of James that I was telling you about? You know, he... Many years later, gained the victory over alcohol. Remember I told you he started drinking when he was 12 years old. He's in his 60s now. And last October, he had his last drink. Hasn't had a drink since. We're blessed today. James is here with us today. I'd like him to come on up here and join me at this time. Come on up, James. I'd like to introduce him to you. This is my good friend. We see each other uh, a couple times a week sometimes. And James is here because of a miracle of God. Nothing short of this. And James is a work in progress just like I am. I was sharing with them earlier that God is still cooking on us. But someday, I heard it said, the Lord's going to pull us out of the oven and he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well done indeed. Exactly. Uh, he is my friend. He has had many great things happen in the last seven years. Um, he has joined the Heavenly Valley Seventh-day Adventist Church here in town. He uh, came to this because he just happened to come across, somehow came across a piece of literature from Project Steps to Christ. Literature ministry is powerful, my friends. It was a random mailing. A random mailing, he says. A random mailing. I, I don't call it random, personally. I, I think the Lord targeted him and uh, especially, and opened up a way for a miracle to take place in James's life. A life without hope, a life of ultra-low self-esteem, a life where, what point is there in continuing on? Why even try to continue on? Because God loves you, and the the, the love of the Lord is touching his life. The love of the Lord is touching my life. We are all growing together. James is just an example, just one example of a person whose life is being touched now. He's growing. He's still growing in areas of his life. He hasn't, he, he's not all done. Neither am I. Neither are you. Thanks, James, for coming today. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Stay with me for just a second. Let's pray. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for taking us back one more time. I thank you, Lord, for this example in the city of Jerusalem and the story of Nehemiah to encourage us on life's path. Uh, the enemy is powerful, Lord, and, and we are so susceptible to his wooings. We need, we desperately need your protection. We thank you for it. You said, Lord, that you would be with us to the end. I am with you always, you said. 
We realize, too, that life and all of its downfalls and devil's traps and, and temptations are not pleasant. They are not the things we want to go through. But we realize that you work through those things if they do happen to us. You've promised, in fact, that all things work together for the good of those who love you and are the called according to your purpose. Thank you, Lord, for your promises. And thank you for my friend James. Thank you for each of the people here today. Bless them as they go their ways. And bless us in our conversations this afternoon, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, James.